Good morning. Hopefully everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, you'll notice, number one, I never preach against gluttony. Number two, I definitely never preach against gluttony during the holidays. So we're in, uh, we're in Mark chapter 2 this morning. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Mark chapter 2. It doesn't take much time in a conversation with me for you to learn that I'm a big Matt Chandler fan. Not in a, uh, not in a, I've got his poster all over my bedroom wall, Justin Bieber kind of thing, but, you know, I'm definitely a fan of the guy. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Matt Chandler is, Matt Chandler is the current president of the Acts 29 Church Planting Organization. He's also lead pastor of the Village Church in the Fort Worth, uh, Texas area. But uh, I'm a fan. I have his book. It's called The Explicit Gospel. Great book. I listen to his sermons every week. I highly recommend them. You know, if you're looking for something to supplement your, your weekly intake of God's Word, the Matt Chandler is a great source to listen to. But I love his personality. What I view as to the point, others view as, as kind of abrupt and abrasive. What some people feel to be sarcastic, I just see as, as witty. You know, he, he's a, a belligerent, brassy, loud, funny guy. And I just, I'm starting to sound like a Justin Bieber kind of fan, but uh, I follow him on Twitter at MattChandler74. Uh, I know how old he is. I can tell you about a brain tumor that he had removed in 2009. I know his wife's name. I know how many kids he has. Uh, I even shook the guy's hand once at a conference in North Carolina. I've still not washed the hand. And so I can tell you that I know Matt Chandler. All right, but to be honest with you, if Matt Chandler was standing right beside me, he'd be scratching his head and going, okay, who is this cat and why does he have a man crush on me? All right, and he might have something of a point because, you know, while I enjoy listening to the guy preach, we've never really conversed. Yeah, I talked to him once at a conference in, in North Carolina, but we don't email back and forth. He doesn't text me. He doesn't have me on speed dial, I don't think. That'd be really cool. And... If he could just send me a, a big poster, but anyways. But I don't know Matt Chandler. All right, yeah, I might know a little bit more about him than some of you do, but if Matt Chandler were in this room, he wouldn't know any more about me than he'd know about any of you. I mean, he, he doesn't know me. I don't know the guy. I know a lot about him, but I don't know the guy. And so as we've been making our way through Mark, we see that there's a group of people in Jesus' day that know God better than probably any of us would say that we do. They were known as the Pharisees. It means separated ones. They had this religion thing down. All right? They could do it better than any one of us could do. They knew the 613 commands in the Old Testament. They knew that there were 248 positive commands, 248 do-thises found between Genesis in Malachi, they knew there were 365 negative commands, the don't do this. All right, they had identified all 613 of them. Not only had they identified them, but they had developed like a, a hedge of protection, if you will, so that not only would they not break these 613 commands, but they would also create some new ones just to keep them from ever doing that. For example, and I'm just going to totally make this up. Let's say it's against God's law to touch this screen. 
All right, that's a clear-cut command of Scripture. What the Pharisees would do is they would say, okay, well, we're going to make it also against the law to come within five feet of it. So that if you keep that law, which says five feet, then you definitely don't have to worry about touching the screen. All right, so they would create supplementary laws and rules and regulations and a bit more things to add to their religion just to protect them against violating any of God's explicit laws. I mean, they were really good at this. This was the lifestyle of a Pharisee. I mean, they prided themselves on their ability to maintain God's law and earn their righteousness. They were Jews, all right? They were God's own special chosen people. Their lives were marked by their seemingly inhuman ability to keep God's law. And yet the question is, did they really know him? Did they really know who God was? And so as we've been making our way through Mark, and for those of you that are new with us, we started at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, like 12 weeks ago, and we're just now getting into chapter 2. Well, I guess we're midway into chapter 2. We're taking our time. It's going to take us almost two years to cover this one book because it takes that much time to really digest everything that God has said so that we can figure out how we're going to apply it to our lives 2,000 years later. But we're picking up on this weird tension between Jesus, who was also a Jew, and these Pharisees, who were the super-religious Jews, as well as the scribes. And the scribes were the ones, they were also Jews, and they were the ones who very faithfully and meticulously copied God's manuscripts, His Word in Hebrew, to preserve that. And because of their familiarity with it, they were the ones who were most equipped to teach it. And so they were the teachers of the law, the Pharisees were the keepers of the law. Together, they were the religious elite 2,000 years ago. I mean, you couldn't out-religion these guys. But they're button heads with Jesus. And we really started to see this when Jesus began to teach in the synagogues. He would go into these Jewish places of worship and he would teach, as Mark says, with authority. I mean, he could teach in a way that the scribes said, I don't understand what he's talking about. It was things that they weren't really used to because Jesus was kind of clearing up their misconception of what God's word meant. Of course, in their mind, they're thinking, okay, Jesus is totally misunderstanding this. He's twisting this. And so this tension begins to build. But not only was he able to teach with authority, but the historical documents that we have from eyewitnesses say that Jesus was also able to cast out demons with authority. He could heal people with authority. He had power over the elements. I mean, he had power over everything. And so Jesus is teaching. He's healing people. Last week, we really saw a fight begin to brew between Jesus and the Pharisees because when Jesus was teaching in the house in Capernaum that was so packed that people couldn't come inside, do you remember those four friends brought their paralyzed friend, opened up a hole in the roof and lowered him down, and then Jesus had the audacity to say, your sins are forgiven? And then the Jews were like, uh, uh, I don't know if you understand this, Jesus, but you're making claims that only God can make. All right, And the Pharisees were really kind of bristling up a little bit. And then Jesus was like, okay, yeah, I'm glad that you get that. And check this out. And then he heals the guy too. He says, what's easier, to tell somebody to take up their bed and walk or to, or to declare them forgiven of sins? But so that I can demonstrate that I have the authority to forgive sins, rise, take up your bed and walk. And, and then he walked. And everybody in the house glorified God because of this. And so here's where the tension is. All right. The Pharisees knew the law. I mean, they really understood the commandments that God gave. They understood what God said, don't do this, do this, eat this, talk to these people, don't hang out with these people, wear this, don't wear this. They understood all of that. But then here's Jesus, who himself is a Jew, who is starting to have this bit of a following, 
And it seems that Jesus is bound and determined to almost upset everything that the Jews were following. And so they're trying to understand, well, why is Jesus preaching this message of grace and love when God has clearly given us his law to keep? And so we see this unique dynamic where, where Jesus comes in and he's trying to demonstrate that grace trumps the rules. And so Jesus, as he's going through Galilee and proclaiming this good news, we see him preaching from, Jesus, or from Peter's house. But we'll also see that periodically Jesus makes his way down to the, to the Sea of Galilee, down there at the lake. And not only will he teach around the shoreline, but sometimes he'll even get into a boat, push himself offshore a little bit, and then address the crowds who have come in mass to listen to this odd message of grace that he's preaching. And so as our text picks up in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, we see that Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. All right, so work through this with me. I, I need you to paint this picture in your head. All right, Jesus has just finished teaching in a house, presumably Peter's house. And if you were here last week, you'll remember the details. The house was so crowded, nobody could get in. Jesus performed the supernatural healing of this paralyzed man, declared him forgiven of his sins, and now he's making his way back down to the lake to continue teaching. And so either on the way to the lake to continue teaching or on the way after we see that the crowds once again know, okay, Jesus is on the move. It wasn't uncommon for Jesus to teach as he's, as he's walking. You know, Jesus wasn't the kind of guy who was going to see somebody fall on him and then think to himself, well, I'm just going to walk in silence until we get to where... No, I mean, he's teaching the entire way. That was the way that rabbis taught disciples back then. And so once again, the word goes out that Jesus is walking around teaching, and so again, the crowds just come to him. And so... Uh, as Jesus is walking, Mark tells us that as he passed by, he saw Levi, also known as Matthew. It wasn't uncommon for Jewish men to have two names. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, we need to park it here for a bit because I don't think we've talked about tax collectors yet. and We need to break this down so that we can understand what is going on here culturally 2,000 years ago. Because now when we hear tax collector, we think, okay, the IRS the Internal Revenue Service, they're the people who take our paycheck and then just chop off that part, and then we have to report our taxes, and we've got until, was it, April 15th, something like that, to file our taxes, and if we don't, the IRS comes knocking on the door. It's a little bit different back then, because you have to understand that right now, Rome ruled the known world. Stretching from England to Africa, from Syria to Spain, one out of every four people alive on the earth at this time fell beneath the, um, the umbrella of the Roman Empire. One out of four. We're talking millions of people in a two million plus square mile patch of land and sea. And so the Roman Empire obviously does not have an army large enough to have a battalion of soldiers stationed in every city and town that they occupy as the empire begins to spread. Not only do they not have enough soldiers, but they can't afford to recruit an army that large. And so what the empire would do as the empire spread and there were pockets of rebellion and, you know, if, if you're familiar with Red Dawn, you know, you've got that whole dynamic of, of people not liking their land taken over. And so there were obviously skirmishes all throughout the empire that Rome needed to address. And so what they would do is they would hire mercenary armies to just come in, crush the rebellion, arrest the people, kill them, whatever, and then they would leave, all right? So there was no need to keep a trained army. 
There was no need to have a garrison at every town. All Rome needed to do was hire the right army to come in, brutalize the place, murder innocent civilians, rape the women, kill the children, steal the children, sell them into slavery. I mean, it, it, was, it was nasty. But Rome needed a way to pay these armies. And so one of the ways they would do it was by raising taxes from the people that they were occupying. All right, so Rome now has this brilliant idea. Okay, we're not going to fund an army, but we do need to fund these mercenaries that come in and clean up shop. And so to pay them, well, we're just going to take the money from the people whose land we're occupying. All right, pretty crafty on their part. But here's the thing. The, Romes, the Romans didn't really know the lingo. They didn't know the people. They didn't know the culture. And so what they would do is they would find within the people, within the civilian population, tax collectors who would work on their behalf. But it gets a little worse because to find the best one for it, they would allow all the prospective wannabe tax collectors to place a bid on either a given product or a region of land. And so they would submit these bids to the Roman Empire. Well, I think that I can probably get you $5,000 per citizen per year. Well, I think I can get you 6000 And so they would place bids. And whoever won the bid had officially bought rights to raise taxes from their own people. And so we're talking about Jewish citizens placing bids so that they can have government approval to raise taxes from their fellow Jews. And so now you're a tax collector. You've won this right. You placed the right bid, which not only motivates you to kind of strong arm your friends to pay up, because if you don't meet quota, then you've got the Roman Empire breathing down your neck, and that's not good. And so not only are you kind of strong-arming your friends and family members and, and countrymen to pay taxes, but now you're realizing, well, wait a minute. If I placed a bid for $10,000 a year or whatever it looked like, and I raise $11,000, then I can pocket the extra thousand as a commission, a kickback. Rome is happy. I'm happy. Everybody's happy, right? Uh, no, everybody but the people that you're living with. Because now... These Jewish people are seeing Matthew, who was a Jew, working on behalf of the Roman Empire, taking money out of their pocket so that Rome could pay these armies to come in and brutalize them. So how well-liked do you think tax collectors were? Now, you think people don't like lepers? Lepers are okay. You just avoid lepers. You stay away because they're nasty. But tax collectors... And they, they had a classification all of their own. If you were known as a tax collector, it meant you were scum. It meant that you were garbage. It meant that you were worthless. And so here's Matthew sitting in his tax booth somewhere by the lake. And now this is the ironic part. Matthew, as a tax collector, is probably responsible for several things on the Sea of Galilee. Number one, for people to fish there. And I'm not saying to have open rights to fish the entire lake. I'm saying to have the ability to fish a specific part of the lake, you had to pay a fee, kind of like a fishing license in our culture. And so not only are you paying money to get your boat out there, but once you catch the fish, then you have to pay a fee just to take them to the marketplace. And then once you pay that fee and you get the fish to the marketplace and hopefully you sell them, well, now you have to pay taxes on the profit that you made from your catch. And so when we see Peter, James, and John, these other fishermen, who fish for a living, by the time they get paid for all of their work, they're probably missing 40% of their income paying people like Matthew. 
So you can imagine the irony there when Jesus is calling Matthew, who attacks these fishermen, to join their little crew. And so Jesus approaches Matthew, and as he's getting ready to speak, you know the scribes and Pharisees are probably hoping, okay, Jesus is now finally going to put somebody in their place. Because Matthew is a tax collector. He's against his own people. Jesus claims to be a Jew. Surely he's going to tell this guy what scum he is, what garbage he is, how what he's doing is detrimental to the people of God. But what does Jesus do? He says, no. Follow me. Sound familiar? Sure enough, what does Matthew do? He rose and he followed him. Now we don't know if this was Matthew's first encounter with Jesus. All right, we don't know if he's been listening to the message of Jesus day after day for however long Jesus has been talking along the lake. We don't know any of the history. It could have been the first time ever he'd ever laid eyes on Jesus. But regardless, Matthew saw something in this person of Jesus that compelled him to walk away from his job as a tax collector. And I would even argue that it's a lot larger sacrifice than what Peter, James, and John made. Why? Because if you're a fisherman and you decide to quit fishing so that you can follow Jesus and that just doesn't pan out, you can always go back to fishing. But if you are a tax collector working on behalf of Rome and you walk away from your job, which now means that the Roman Empire is not getting the money that you said you'd get, your days as a tax collector are over. And the odds of you getting a job from one of your friends who you used to take money from are slim to none. So Matthew is leaving everything to follow Jesus. Isn't it amazing the things that we sometimes hold on to, even as followers of Christ? Because anything that we value more than Jesus, anything that we place a greater importance on than Jesus is an idol. And for some of us, it's popularity, financial stability, comfort, friends, family. Even as Christ followers, we're still sometimes not showing the level of commitment that Matthew had. And some of us here have yet to follow Christ because of what we know it will cost us. But Matthew got up and he followed him. Now you would think, okay, Matthew's just lost his job. He has just turned his back on financial stability. It's time to kind of feel sorry for himself, to sit back and go, man, I, I probably should have thought that through. But No, no, not Matthew, though. What Matthew does after this, after he leaves his job, follows Christ, he throws a party. All right, And it's not just a small dinner party with three or four people. He throws a good party. After leaving his booth to follow Christ, Mark jumps ahead. And in verse 15, we see that Matthew is reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. All right, now in the Greco-Roman culture, you don't eat at a table that sits about yay high, surrounded by four, six, or eight chairs. You don't sit at a circular table that's got chairs like we have on the other side of the curtain. What they would do back then, and this is what this phrase means, it means reclines at table. What they would have is a low sitting table, and on three sides of it, something of a square couch or, or almost like a, that big footstool-looking thing that Walt used to have. I don't know what they're called. But what people would do is they would lay on their side, and I'm not going to demonstrate it for you, but they would lay on their left side, and if they wanted to, they could kind of prop their head up with their left hand, and as they laid there, they would just reach over to this table and put some food in their mouth. 
All right, and there would be three or four of them on each of these sections, so you could get about 12 people around the table that are just kicked back, laying down, eating food, you know, leaning back this way to talk to the person next to them or talking right into the, I mean, it just, it sounds awkward, all right? I'm not going to lie. That, that's, that's not my style. If I'm laying down eating, I'm going to be asleep before dessert shows up. Maybe that was the point. I don't know. But the phrase recline at table, it encompasses more than just simply laying there and eating, but it embraces the whole idea of, of gathering together over a meal. And so we know that this is not just a small, quiet dinner affair, but it becomes something of a block party. And this is how we know, all right? Matthew has invited many tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is there with his disciples, not just the four that we already know about, probably crowds of people. And you can imagine how awkward that becomes when Jesus goes to Peter, James, and John and says, Hey, you remember Matthew, that dirtbag tax collector that's taking money from you while you're out there working for fish? Yeah, uh, he's one of my followers now. And we're going to go hang out at his place with him and his boys. All right, so you can imagine the awkwardness there. But this party is big. And we know that because it caught the attention of the scribes and Pharisees. All right, we know that they're not going to be in this house for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're not going to be eating Matthew's food because as a non-Pharisee, chances were good that he hadn't tithed on his food. And if he hadn't tithed on it, we certainly weren't going to eat it. But aside from that, Matthew as a tax collector of all people, a good Pharisee wouldn't be caught dead in his house. And so this party has spilled out of the house and now it's catching the attention of the neighbors, the scribes and Pharisees, and they're just watching this barbecue going on where the food is on the grill, the wine is flowing, everyone's having a good time. And then at the very center of the celebration, the object of celebration, is Jesus. And so you got to imagine what goes through the scribes and Pharisees' mind as they see that. All right, so here's Jesus, who by his own words and actions has declared himself basically to be God, when he said, I forgive you of sins, when he touched the leper and healed him, yet he's in the middle of all of this mess with tax collectors and sinners? It's ridiculous. And so they begin to question people. And Mark tells us that, that they uh, begin to ask Jesus' disciples, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners, Gentiles, people who live a lifestyle that's marked by sin, probably some prostitutes in there? I mean, what is Jesus hanging out with these people for? Doesn't he know they're worthless? Doesn't he know that God hates these people? Doesn't he know that they're kind of against everything that we stand for as, as God's chosen holy people? Doesn't Jesus realize that he's seeking the approval of the wrong crowd? Doesn't he understand that he needs to be like us, maintaining our religion? And he's in here partying with a bunch of people who don't even know God? And then when Jesus hears about this, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so who goes to the doctor when they don't believe themselves ill? Uh, yeah, nobody does that. If you're not sick, you have no need for a doctor. They have no value to them. I'm not going to say they're worthless, but at the moment... You certainly don't need them for everyone in the medical profession. Understand what I'm saying here. And so Jesus' point is this. If you're not sick, I'm not here for you. If you have no need of a Savior, then I'm not here for you. If you, by your own merit, have garnered a relationship with God, then you don't need me. 
If there's no gulf between you and God, then you don't need a mediator. If you have kept the law perfectly, then you don't need a sacrifice for your sins. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not here for you. All right, I'm here for the people that need a Redeemer. I'm here for the people that need their Messiah, that need this mediator between us and God. But here's the problem. See, these Pharisees, they weren't as spotless as what Jesus was kind of saying. Because they thought they knew God. All right, they kept the law, 613 commands, added some extra ones just to keep them from breaking God's law. I mean, they knew God. So Jesus was saying, I'm not here for you. You know God, you're good, but look at these people. They need me. I'm not here for you, I'm here for them. But here's the fundamental problem. All right, these Pharisees knew God the same way that I know Matt Chandler. All right, they knew a lot about God. I would submit to you that they knew more about God than I'll probably ever remember in my life. I mean, their entire life was devoted to knowing God, to following the law, to being religious. And yet they didn't know God. They were so caught up in their own religion that they failed to realize that they too were in need of a Savior. They were so focused on their external actions that they were blinded to their inner sinfulness. They were so hung up on the idea of keeping the law that they failed to understand that they weren't even doing a really good job of that. They were in dire need of a Savior. It's easy to look back on 2,000 years of church history and feel bad for the Pharisees. All right, When we look at these guys who, who look at their own life and assume that their righteousness has got them on good terms with God, it's easy to feel sorry for them. Especially when you see in Isaiah where God says that all of these things that you do, talking to his own people, he said all of these righteous deeds that you do to bridge this gap between us, they disgust me. They're like filthy rags. So these Pharisees are clueless, and we can look back on them and feel sorry for them. We can look back and say, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm not one of them. But the sad reality is that 2,000 years later, we have churches full of Pharisees who get caught up in the religiosity of all of this, and they assume, I know Jesus based on my actions, when in reality they have no clue who he is. And you say, well, Richard, that's kind of harsh, a little bit judgmental of you. I mean, who are you to say that? But those aren't my words. All right, those are Jesus' words. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 7, you would see Jesus himself saying that on the day of judgment, the vast majority of people who emphatically declare Jesus to be Lord who can look at the actions in their life and say, yeah, I did these things, so I'm a Christian, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. So 2,000 years later, we're still getting caught up in this game of religion. We're still caught up in the things that we do to make God happy. We're still caught up on the, well, I've done this and this and this and this, therefore I should go to heaven when I die. You're still trying to focus on the rules. So Jesus wasn't telling the Pharisees that they didn't need them. Jesus was condemning them. Jesus was saying, I'm here for people who are broke. I'm here for people who are sick. I'm here for people who need a Savior. I don't care how ugly they are. I love them. But if you don't need that, if you want to trust yourself on the Day of Judgment, fine. See how well that goes for you. 
And so Jesus was essentially given a choice to the Pharisees and the scribes. It's the same one that he even now extends to all of us. And that choice is this. I know it sounds cliched, but it's really true. It's our journey marker for the week. Religion, the things that we do, or relationship, the Son of God that we know. Are you trusting in yourself for salvation or in Jesus? Do you want to trust your ability to do things so that God is pleased and saves you? Or are you ready to simply say, I know that I can't. I know there's no way in the world that I could ever live a perfect, righteous, law-abiding life. Because here's the thing. This is what the Pharisees and the scribes, this is what they didn't understand. All right, This law that their entire life was wrapped around, the purpose of this law was not so that they could keep these rules and be saved. All right, what does Paul tell us the purpose of the law is? He said the law is a schoolmaster. The law is a teacher. The law shows us that we could never keep it in the first place. The law demonstrates for us our inability as fallen creatures to live a life of sheer perfection. The purpose of the law was to show us that we needed rescue, that we needed a Savior, that we needed someone who could stand on that cross like Jesus did 2,000 years ago and bear his Father's wrath upon the sins of absolutely anyone who trusts Christ and Savior. So what are you going to trust in? Religion or a relationship? And so as Craig comes forward and we begin to prepare for our last worship song, there's a couple thoughts that I want to run by you. A couple thoughts that I want you to think about. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is God's way of saying, I don't care how broken you are, I don't care how ugly you are. I don't care how sinful you are. I don't care how unlovable you feel like you are. Jesus on the cross is saying, I'm here. Follow me. The same invitation that he gave to Matthew. Matthew, a tax collector who was radically opposed to God's people, Jesus said, follow me, and he followed him. No one, no one is beyond the reach of God's love. And so if you're here this morning and you've not followed Christ, you have always been trusting in yourself or your goodness, perhaps you've been holding on to some things in your life that you've been scared to let go of and pursue Christ, then today is the day where you say, okay, God, I surrender. I surrender. I am trusting your son to save me. Are you ready to do that this morning? But then, church, I want you to think about this too. Even those of us who are followers of Christ, we still get caught up. And this thing known as religion. All right, religion in and of itself is not bad if you're doing it right. Pure religion is loving orphans and widows. But to do things in our life that we do simply to please God, whether it's putting money in the plate or I went to the gathering or I signed up to volunteer, if we're doing these things because we think it's going to make God love us a little bit more, then we're just as blind as the Pharisees are. I mean, that is empty religiosity. I'm not saying we shouldn't do these things. But if your motivation in doing these is to make God look down on you and say, I love you a little bit more, then you're still missing the point of the cross. Because for those of us who are in Christ, we can't be loved any more than we are by God. Even in our failures and our sin, which we still struggle with, we can't make God dislike us. We can't cause God to love us less. And so again, it's not about the rules. It's not about the religion. It's about understanding that relationship that now we have with Christ. 
It's about understanding that if we are in Christ, then our sins are as far from us as the east is from the west. It's about understanding, okay, God, I knew I blew it this week, but you still love me? And then you live in response to that grace. Again, not to make God happy because you realize He is happy. He is pleased. You are His child. You're His adopted son or daughter. You're a brother or sister to Christ. And so lose the religion. Lose the idea that through our actions we can make God love us more. He loves us with an everlasting love. The same love with which He loved His Son he now gives to us. Can you embrace that? So Father, as we close out this morning, Lord, as we prepare to just sit and reflect a little bit on, on what it means to value a relationship over religion, Lord, I pray that you would help us be honest with ourselves. And I know, Father, there are some here this morning who are still holding on to a religion of some sort. They're still trusting in something that they can do that will earn their salvation. When the reality, Father, is that all we can do by ourselves is mess it up. So, Father, for those that are here this morning that are, that are not in Christ, I pray, Father, you would open their eyes, that you would give life to their heart, that you would allow them this morning to just embrace the beauty and the reality of your Son. Father, for the rest of us, Lord, that are following Christ, that are still hung up on rules, that still look at Christianity as a list of things they can do and can't do. And Father, we understand that there are still commands in Scripture. We understand, Lord, that there are some rules for our joy, for our protection. But Father, we're not going to make you love us more or less by keeping or breaking these, but they're just simply your means of showing us how to conform outwardly to the reality that inwardly we are in Christ. We are a holy people. We are separated. We are sanctified. So Father, help our lives be motivated by worship, not by works. Help us to live in faith, not in fear. Be with us now in this time, Father. Send your Holy Spirit among us to just touch our hearts, to convict us, to give us the courage and the motivation to apply the truths that we've heard this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name.